Most of you are probably familiar with the story. After World War I, the Rhineland in Germany was occupied by Allied armies, including 100,000 French troops. Among them were 30 to 40,000 African males from their home countries, territories which had been subjected to colonial rule. Some of these occupying troops had interpersonal relationships with German women, including African soldiers. And while the phenomena of post-war rape was awfully real after war World War I, there were limited credible documented reports of German women being sexually assaulted by the black soldiers among the French regiment. Yet, much like the French and other Allied soldiers, post-war children were produced. But the African soldiers experienced a virulent anti-black propaganda campaign, and their children, the Afro-Germans, were isolated, surveilled, and persecuted. After World War I, Afro-German children numbered in the hundreds. Most scholars agree on a number between 500 and 800 children, though there were or, well, there may have been many, many more. But they were not alone. There was always a small black presence in Germany. I first became aware of the much older black history in Germany in the works of J.A. Rogers, Edward Scobie, and Ivan Van Sertima. Since the 1870s, there was a noticeable Afro-German population. Like the post-war rape complex, rape in the colonies was significant. It was a significant operational practice. What emerged were the children of German men and African women who were from the prior German colonies, which included, from the late 1800s, countries like Burundi, Tanzania, Cameroon, New Guinea, Namibia, Congo, Togo, Ghana, Rwanda, Morocco, and Tunisia. According to Benjamin Madley in his work, From Africa to Auschwitz, quote, in colonial Namibia, Africans were routinely beaten, flogged, raped, and sometimes killed, end quote. Collectively, by the time the Third Reich rose to power, these Afro-Germans were always in very small numbers when compared to the overall German population. By 1933, there were about 25,000 mixed-race people compared to over 65 million Germans. But the presence of this small number of the population was used to reinvent anti-black racist propaganda in order to demand a strong solution to the nation's Negro problem. The Nazis implemented a wide range of laws and policies specifically against Afro-Germans. Some of these racist, restrictive, and brutal programs resulted in generalized social disfranchisement, forced sterilization, and death. The Nazis pejoratively called these people the African-German population, the Rhineland Bastards. This is Dr. Catherine Bancoli Medina with the invention of racism. 
The goal of this podcast series is to share the subtle and not so subtle nuances of racism from the past into the 21st century. Understanding and speaking the truth about racism is the first step toward combating and ultimately eliminating it. World War II contained a catalog of horrors, including the Jewish, Roma, Slav Holocaust, as well as a range of exploitative medical and eugenicist activities. Individuals followed the state's mandate when they participated in these kinds of abuses, which represented a deep-rooted commitment to racism and white supremacy. In this episode, we briefly examine the authoritarian racist personality. The basic idea that racism has a distinct psychological personality type which is inherently authoritarian and fascistic. And note, this is a similar thread to earlier podcast episodes. So we took a look at Theodore Adorno's work, The Authoritarian Personality. This was published in 1950, and he was the lead author, along with co-authors Franco Brunswick, Levison, and Sanford. Adorno was a German philosopher, sociologist, and musicologist who contributed to the popular German critical theory movement. His sociological work, The Authoritarian Personality, was influential and is still examined today in popular and academic circles. It is critically challenged by many, especially political psychologists. Adorno's work has been vigorously debated and debunked and defended and expounded upon for more than 70 years. And the biases and methodological flaws in the book have been thoroughly discussed. But looking at the qualitative value of his collective works on fascism does speak to at least one important example of how racism distinctively expresses itself in the human personality. Adorno was trying to explain the rise of anti-Semitism and fascism leading up to and encompassing World War II. He needed a reason for the extreme obedience that resulted in the forced sterilization of women and children and the destruction of human life in the extermination camps. He found part of the answer in attempting to understand authoritarianism. Authoritarianism refers to concentrating power in a leader who enforces strict obedience to authority while devaluating or devaluing individual freedom. Adorno came up with nine traits of the authoritarian personality that he believed emanated from early childhood. Paraphrasing, the nine traits include such behaviors as number one, conventionalism, seeking social acceptance by conforming to accepted customs. Two, authoritarian submission. Three, authoritarian aggression. Four, anti-interception which is um, a dislike for subjectivity and imagination. Five, 
we are talking about people who are prone to superstition and stereotypes. Six, they also have an awe of power and the idea of toughness. Seven, they are prone to ideals, ideals akin to destructiveness and cynicism. Eight, projectivity, which is projection. The unconsciously, the unconscious act of transferring one's feelings onto another person. And nine, the personality has an exaggerated concern over sexual activity. So considering the early Afro-German struggle in the German Rhineland regions, coupled with key ideas from and surrounding Adorno's work, consider the authoritarian racist personality. What was it like to be born into a world where, because of your African ancestry, you are persecuted before you leave the womb? From that point, your experience does not necessarily improve. For some, the decline of quality of life was steep. Your father was demonized, your mother branded as a race traitor, and you were ostracized as a child. You couldn't attend schools and universities and were also barred from employment, including the professions and careers. You can't have a biological family because you were involuntarily sterilized by the state. Remember that mentally and physically disabled people were also subjected to compulsory sterilization and even euthanasia. This ensured that you would never have children and you would carry the meaning of all of this for a lifetime, provided you were not killed or mysteriously disappeared by the state system of population control. Some Afro-Germans tried to resist, but many felt powerless to change such a brutal and all-encompassing system. The characteristics of the authoritarian racist personality, and I'll abbreviate it as ARP, are profound. In our conception, the ARP supports conservative values, meaning that people and institutions are reflexive, uncritical, and oppressively aligned with conservative thought. It supports the anti-intellectual aphorisms in ingrained ethnocentrism, which assumes that whatever they choose to believe about non-white people people of color, they believe it's true. This is captured by rigid thinking and adverseness to complex thinking. ARP is obsessed with convoluted notions of racial order and hierarchy. The authoritarian racist personality accepts these structures because they are essentially under the umbrella of power and maintain that people of color can be controlled. Acceptance of authority is comfortable because it offers patriarchal figures that emerge as savior, 
saviors. And this is embodied in such ideas as the master race, the slave master, the great white hope, and the white man's burden. ARP upholds the combined ideas of power and strength because power is the ultimate goal and strength is needed to realize that goal. Further, intolerance of and prejudice against others is the natural outcome when a state is trying to build an empire based on racial purity. It is easy to find scapegoats in this rubric because they are necessary. Remember this famous quote of Adolf Hitler blaming the Jews for the existence of Afro-Germans. He believed that, quote, it was and is the Jews who bring the Negro to the Rhine, always with the same concealed thought and the clear goal of destroying by the bastardization which would necessarily set in, the white race which they hate, to throw it down from its cultural and political height and in turn to rise personally to the position of master." End quote. So he believed that Jews who like blacks and mixed race people were not white were planning world domination and the explicit annihilation of the European continent. The fear of losing power and strength, coupled with intolerance and prejudice, gave rise to this need to systematically destroy future generations and is a demonstration of highly aggressive behavior towards the other. And lastly, the authoritarian racist personality is compelled to subordinate and oppress those deemed to be inferior. As we move to a conclusion, I recommend Susan Sample's scholarly chapter, African Germans in the Third Reich, and this appears in Aisha Blackshire Belay's outstanding work, The African German Experience. And also I recommend Showing Our Colors, Afro-German Women Speak Out, edited by May Orpitz, Katharina Oguntoye, and Dagmar Schultz. This book is considered the first serious treatment of German anti-black racism encompassing history and the modern era and has a foreword by Audre Lorde. And also, take a look at Clarence Lussain's Hitler's Black Victims, the historical experiences of European blacks, Africans, and African Americans during the Nazi era. Lussain's work points out Germany's commitment to powerful imagery and myth-making in the construction of anti-black propaganda. Among European nations, historically speaking, the Germans led in the creation of the modern discourse on race and racism. But that's another podcast episode for another time. According to Hitler, one of the main problems of the people he derisively called the Rhineland Bastards 
was that they were living, they were a living and breathing manifestation of the failures of the German state. It was understood that they could not be deracinated or absorbed into Aryan culture because their impurity knew no bounds. The racist logic behind this was that the nature of their birth meant that an impure act had taken place. And the Afro-Germans were not enough of a demographic threat to warrant wholesale extermination, but they were considered a significant risk to Germany's future. But the social and geopolitical failures of the state after World War I had nothing to do with the Afro-Germans, of course. They were caught up in a pernicious racist system that was incapable of even thinking about protecting the most innocent members of society. This acutely involved the taking of African countries under the banner of colonial competition and plunder, brutally exploiting human labor, and appropriating valuable natural resources in addition to devaluing, distorting, and destroying cultures and languages. Imagine all of this, and centuries later, identifying oneself as an enlightened society, which then refuses to make amends and support the descendants of this kind of intergenerational racist abuse. This is why we call it structural racism. Systems put into place that recreate and perpetuate the global racist state through time and space. The African-German children after World War I were targeted precisely because they were different and most vulnerable. What happened to them tells us much about the authoritarian racist personality. I treasure my copy of Showing Our Colors, Afro-German Women Speak Out, and I remember the day I bought it. It was March 8, 2002, and I was fortunate enough to have one of the editors, German sociologist, publisher, and professor Dagmar Schultz, sign my copy. And I didn't read that inscription for some time later, but it says, May we all use the power we have to affect change. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Support for independent podcasts like The Invention of Racism is so critical at this moment. In the national and global effort to dismantle racism and to establish human equality, we need as many thoughtful and courageous voices as possible. If you believe in and appreciate this anti-racism podcast, continue to download, like, share, and support us. I also encourage you to use your media platform to honestly analyze, examine, and just put an end to racism. So September 30th, 2021 marks our second anniversary. We have a respectable following in many parts of the world and it is growing. To help us mark our second anniversary on air, drop a comment on Twitter using the hashtag 
The Invention of Racism. Or send us an email. And if you send us an email, we may decide to use it. We may decide to quote from it, unless you tell us otherwise. Okay, there's nothing else to say except I am so thankful and grateful and truly humbled by this experience over the last couple of years. I, if you are listening to this podcast series, and I know that you are, then you already know Discourse on Racism is just not for the faint of heart. I hope that you will continue to join me as I present key topics in the invention of racism.